Hey, hey, what's up, Ninja Turtle fans? Thanks for joining me for episode 18 of Booyaka Show, a TMNT podcast. It is a beautiful, gray and rainy day here in usually sunny San Diego. As always, I'm your host, Zach Norris, and thankfully, I love the rain, so I have no complaints. So what better way to start my day, right? Some rain and some Booyaka Show. In today's episode, we're finishing up the Big City at War recap with part two, which covers issues 96 through 99 on the road to 100, as IDW's and TMNT creators are calling it. Today is Saturday the 7th, and issue 100 is out this upcoming Wednesday, so although I wish I had this done sooner so people could spend more time with it, you're listening now, and I hope this plays a good accompanying piece to your City at War experience. In this handful of issues that we're about to discuss, we see the fallout of Jenica's transformation, we see the conflict between Karai and Splinter come to a head, and we see the Turtles prepare for a battle they are probably not ready for, but we know them being the Turtles, they will face head-on and do what they do best. As always, guys, before we jump into this recap, we'd like to do some shout-outs. Uh, In the last episode, I didn't have any shout-outs because I actually recorded the part one recap before my interview with John. So the shout-outs from the recap episode got bumped to the interview episode. So anyways, definitely want to handle some shout-outs this time. So let's start it off with the usual suspects. The good homies, Rob and Josh at Turtle Flakes. If you follow Turtle Flakes on Instagram or Twitter, you guys may have seen Rob's latest podcast update over the Thanksgiving weekend in which he let everyone know that the Turtle Flakes excuse me, that Turtle Flakes may not be continuing. I'm not going to sit here and act like this is the end and talk like they're gone for good because Rob hasn't confirmed it 100%. Either way, I'd like to say something I know I've said before and will definitely say again. Turtle Flakes is a great Turtles podcast that you should definitely check out. Rob and Josh kick some serious shell delivering one of the most consistent and most fun Turtle pods that exists, and I'd be sad to see it go, but We're all human, we grow, we evolve, we move on. Whatever the future holds for them, I wish Rob and Josh the best. Next up, these shoutouts kind of go hand in hand with each other. Gotta send a bodaciously big shoutout and thank you to Aaron Trites, Robert Diaz, and Jesse Garza. Aaron is the owner-operator of Now or Never Comics in downtown San Diego. Y'all have heard me talk on and on about him and his store numerous times. Go check them out if you're in the Southern California area. Aaron recently had a guy come into the shop and sell him a collection of toys. In that collection of toys was an almost complete set of the OG 1988 10-back Softhead Fan Club Flyer Ninja Turtle toys. He had purchased April O'Neil, the No Stripes, No Press Badge version, a pink-faced Bebop, a Splinter, Shredder, Donatello, Raphael, and Michelangelo. Again, all Softheads. Not to mention... The Mikey is the beaded nunchuck version, which is even more rare. He truly came up on some Ninja Turtles gold here, and being the great guy that he is, and knowing I'm a big Turtles guy, he gave me first shot at them. That's where my buddies Robert and Jesse come in. I told Robert and Jesse about these toys for like three days straight, sent them pics, and was basically annoying the shell out of them, because I couldn't believe that I'd seen in real life some carded fan club flyer softheads. So Robert and Jesse, being the great homies they are, teamed up, Venmoed me the cash to buy Raph and Donnie as early Christmas slash birthday presents, because my birthday is pretty close to Christmas. How freaking sweet is that? Whoa! Right? Couldn't believe it. 
These dudes are totally awesome and I don't deserve them, but I am definitely grateful. Long story, much longer. Shout outs and thanks to Aaron, Robert, and Jesse for being such rad dudes. I've got Turtles history in my collection now, and it's thanks to those three gentlemen. Aaron also takes care of any Ninja Turtle comics needs I have at his shop, including the new NECA video game Turtles, the Ninja Turtles Power Ranger crossover, and a sweet IDW Turtles shirt. Thanks again, Aaron. Thanks again, Robert and Jesse. I appreciate y'all. Speaking of rad homies doing rad things, I've got to shout out my bud Drew, who just recently hooked me up with a carded leatherhead from the 2012 series and an unopened blimp from the 2012 show. Both are super nice, and I really appreciate it. Leatherhead was a standout side character from the 2012 show, so I'm hyped to have him in figure form. I don't usually go for vehicles from the toy lines, but the blimp is freaking awesome. I've already got it blown up and hanging up in my office slash turtle lair. Thanks again, Drew. You're the man. Just also recently got your Christmas card. You and your family are so sweet. Thanks again, buddy. Take care. Last couple shout out guys, and then we'll get this recap going. I don't do this as much as I should, so I'm going to take the time now. Forgive me if this just oozes cheesiness into your headphones, but I got to shout out my lady, my longtime girlfriend, longtime fiance, and soon-to-be wife, Katie. I know you don't listen to the show, baby girl, because you have to listen to me talk turtles every day, but I appreciate you and I love you. Katie's a teacher, and she's a great one at that, but teachers have hard, thankless jobs. She does the job anyway, and she does it with grace and patience and compassion. She does all that, and then she comes home and deals with me, and I'm beyond grateful. I love you, sweetheart. Shout out to all the wifeys, hubbies, partners out there that are accepting, understanding, and appreciative of all of us grown-up nerds. You mean the world to us, I promise. And last but not least, guys, shout out to the team over at Nickelodeon for knocking out some ridiculously good episodes of Rise of the TMNT. The last few episodes have been insanely good. They've been so good, in fact, that they kind of expose the weakness of the show, which to me has always been the random spitfire shorter episodes. When Rise does full 20-minute episodes, they do such a killer job. The storytelling, the development, the humor, and of course the action, all top-notch. These longer episodes just really give everything a chance to breathe and ebb and flow. And the last two episodes of season one were straight fire and finally revealed Rise's Shredder. But then turns out in episode one of season two that something is uh, going on with the Shred dude and it may not actually be him or may not be in his true form. Whatever the case may be, when the show focuses on and expands on that part of the world and the characters, I am all in. The shorter and goofier episodes just end up feeling a little subpar when you, you know, put them next to these. I know most fans in my age group aren't big fans of Rise, and I get it, but man, when they are doing stuff like this, it's hard for me to not back this show. Ant Ward, Andy Suriano, all the animators and team over there, color people, sound people, Um, The animation at whatever studio that handles that, you guys are just incredible. Props to everyone all around. The voice actors. Like I said, when they do episodes like this, it just really, really drives home that this is a great show. That if you're a Ninja Turtles fan, this deserves some of your time. Um, And I think something that's finally settled in for me, I think I have mentioned it before, 
or talked about it before, made the analogy or comparison before, but Rise is basically the anime iteration of Ninja Turtles. And I love it for that. So, all right, guys. That's all for shoutouts this time, Turtle fans. Let's finish up this City at War recap. Things are going to be done slightly differently this time, though. I'm going to start each issue with a... Uh, excuse me, I'm going to start each issue breakdown with the story so far recap from the inside the cover. That way we have the quote-unquote official synopsis before the issue begins. Let's get into it. All right, guys, so we're starting off with issue 96, a.k.a. City at War, part four. This issue was written by Tom Waltz, and the art is by Michael Dialinus. The story so far. War rages between Splinter and Karai for control of the Foot Clan, and with it, the criminal underworld of New York City. Jenica was the first to face Karai's wrath and was close to death. In a desperate gambit to give her healing ooze, Leonardo gave Jenica a blood transfusion, which mutated her. Meanwhile, Bishop and Metalhead are getting closer to capturing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Alright guys, so issue 96 jumps off right where 95 ended, Jenica's mutation. She wakes up and realizes something is different, while Leo passes out from giving up some of his blood. He must have missed lunch and dinner during all the EPF madness, understandable. Jenica doesn't remember much of what happened, so Donnie fills her in, and Jenica is understandably concerned. She's pretty level-headed for someone who just found out that they've been mutated into a giant turtle, but she is friends with giant turtles and the assistant to a giant rat to begin with, so it also makes sense that she didn't freak out too much. Donnie gets Jenica up to speed while Lindsay takes care of Leo, and then Angel comes in to let them know to hit the streets so they can link up with Casey and then head over to Angel's dad's house. We then get a brief scene of Don Puzzarelli, I believe is how you're going to say that, and some other mob dudes discussing the craziness with Splinter and Karai. They talk some smack about ninjas and mutants, and then of course meet a swift end due to some ninjas and mutants. A blind lady ninja leads an assault on the mob dude's high-rise, taking out a squad of henchmen and then the top guys. Last thing we see is a shot of Splinter looking on from a building across the street when an explosion goes off, basically signaling that he won't have to worry about Puzzarelli again. Gears then shift as we catch up with April, who's listening in on a meeting between Baxter Stockman and Madame Null. Null is essentially proposing an alliance between her company and Stockman's since her lab was destroyed by the Mutanimals. Stockman is interested in the offer, but is too busy with his campaign at the moment to lock anything down. Null leaves a business card, and the meeting ends on a shot of April's worried face. Next scene finds us catching up with Donnie, Leo, Jenica, and Lindsay as they find the Purple Dragons. Casey rushes over to check on Jenica, but much to Leo and Donnie's dismay, he's followed by Hun. Things get intense and awkward as Casey discovers Jenica's transformation and he's taken aback. Hun is pissed and he and Leo almost come to blows over the situation. Hun accuses the turtles of ruining everything and he angrily follows Casey who basically got out of there as quick as he could. Leo and Donnie decided to head to the Foot HQ so they can link up and check in with their family while Lindsay and the dragons get Jenica to Angel's dad's place. Before we get to Foot HQ, we catch a scene at the Mutanimals hideout after their mission where they destroyed Null's lab. Hob is very impressed with himself and he's giving everyone props while also talking a little trash. Raph gets a call from Mikey who says they need him to head in for a meeting and Hob ribs him for a bit and tells him to be ready for their next mission. Hob then heads off with Ray to work on something secret and almost certainly sketchy. This issue ends with the heat being turned up at Foot HQ where we find Splinter sipping some tea before being intruded upon by Karai. 
She snuck into the foot's lair and she plans to handle business. Her and Splinter exchange a few blows, but right as it looks like things are going Splinter's way, Karai's mole homie busts into the room from below and takes out some of Splinter's backup. Karai goes on a bad guy rant about how she set Splinter up. She planned on him wanting revenge on the mobsters, and while he was out attending to that, she prepared her forces. The last shots we see are Splinter outnumbered inside, while the Foot Clan is outgunned outside. Alright guys, so this issue gave us, and Casey Jones for that matter, our first real glimpse at Jenica in her turtle form. She's still getting her bearings about her, but she seems to be okay with the idea for now. Casey's definitely hung up on it. I was hoping for a bit more of an understanding response from Casey, uh, but I guess if I'd been falling for a girl and then all of a sudden she was a giant turtle, I'd be thrown off too. Hun is a punk. Whoa! I really dislike him. Uh, he's up there with Bishop for me, and I can't wait to see him get what's coming to him. Seeing Splinter watch the mobster's building explode was pretty epic, but pretty brutal. It's cool seeing Splinter's ruthless side a little bit more. It's easy to forget that he's from an ancient clan of ninja assassins where he did stuff like that and or witnessed stuff like that on the regular. We're used to him being the calm, wise, nurturing father slash sensei, but I like seeing Splinter embrace the other things that he knows best. Uh, unfortunately, because he was out being all brutal and stuff, we see Karai get the drop on him and things aren't looking too good for him at the end of 96. But now, we'll see where they go in issue 97. Issue 97, aka City at War Part 5, also written by Tom Waltz, and the art, again, by Michael Dialinus. Or Dialinus. Or Dialinus. I'm pretty sure after listening to a Turtle Flakes interview that they did with Michael, I think it's Dialinus. But forgive me if I'm saying that wrong. Here's the story so far recap, guys. War rages between Splinter and Karai for control of the Foot Clan, and with it, the criminal underworld of New York City. Jenica was the first to face Karai's wrath and was close to death. In a desperate gambit to give her healing ooze, Leonardo gave Jenica a blood transfusion, which mutated her. Now Karai's final assault on Splinter has begun. So yeah, guys, basically the same recap minus one or two sentences there, but no big deal. Also, I don't know how I feel about the idea that Leo gave the blood transfusion. Like, sure, it was Leo's arm and Leo's blood, but Donnie kind of set all that up. Anyways, I'm nitpicking. All right, guys, much like issue 96 did following issue 95, 97 picks up right where we left off in 96. We're dropped into the middle of a war zone while Sun Tzu quotes flash over panels of battle scenes. The quote is from Art of War, of course, and reads, Let your plans be dark and impenetrable as night, and when you move, fall like a thunderbolt. That's exactly what Karai's faction of the foot did, and it appears she has Splinter's back against the wall. Well, his back is against Ocho, the giant mole character. Quick side note, guys. Not sure if I'm the only one who was out of the loop on this, but Ocho isn't a mutant. Also, I didn't remember her name was Ocho until I read Turtlepedia, but Ocho is a yokai, or a demon. She was the guardian of the Kirinoken, Takashi Tatsuo's ancient sword that Karai now wields. I'd probably know all this if I read Karai's story from TMNT Universe, but I'm lame and hardly read any of the universe issues. Shout out to Turtlepedia for the info. Back to the story. Well, of course, Splinter isn't down and out yet. 
Yumiko, the blind ninja, busts in and distracts Ocho. Splinter takes the opportunity to drive a spear through Ocho's throat and out the top of her head. Remember when I said Splinter could be brutal? Yeah, another example. Splinter asks Yumiko about the orphans and she says they're safe. Karai laughs off the idea that anyone is safe because she believes that she's got the situation under control and based on the panels of her homies putting in work, she's probably right. We cut from the foot HQ to catch up with the turtles. Feels like the first time we've seen them together in a few issues. They're trying to figure out a way into the foot lair and Raph says that he saw some breaching ropes down an alley. They head that way and we jump over to find Harold and Libby in an EPF facility being interrogated by Metalhead. Metalhead is trying to squeeze Harold and Libby for the info about the turtles' whereabouts, but they're not coughing up any bits of info. They're playing hard to get. Harold actually drops some info that catches not only Metalhead off guard, but Bishop as well. He owns Metalhead when he basically tells him that he can be as smart as he can be, but intuition, ingenuity, and imagination, that part was from Libby, will win every time. When they drop this line, there's like a disconcerted kind of angry look on Bishop's face, but who cares? He's a jerk. We cut over to Angel's dad's house where we find Alopex, Angel, Lindsay, and Jenica as they're breaking down the situation to Brooklyn, Angel's dad. He doesn't take things too well and the situation goes from not so great to even worse when some ninja assassins bust in. Alopex, Angel, and Jenica are handling the business, but when you add Hun and Casey Jones as backup, the deal is sealed. They send the assassins packing and Brooklyn's beef is squashed. Hun's isn't though, and he storms out after seeing Casey and Jenica reconcile and share a hug. Also, can't skip the part where Jenica gets her ninja turtle mask. That's right. Alopex takes one of the assassins' hoods and makes a makeshift bandana for Jenny, which is appropriate and kind of a full circle moment because when we first met Jenica, she was an assassin for the foot who dressed similarly to those guys with like a full, you know, color hooded thing over her face and the big, you know, claw weapons on her hands. So it's pretty cool now that some yellow assassins attacked them. She's removing, Alopex, excuse me, is removing their hood, making it into this bandana, handing it over to Jenica and boom. Full circle, full transformation. Jenny now has a mask. She's rocking a bandana just like the four bros and she looks ready to do her thing. As the scene comes to a close and Hun storms out, we get a quick shot of Bishop informing one of his lackeys to keep tabs on Hum. Hum. Yeah, that guy. Hum. Ay, ay, ay. Does anybody have any idea about who or what this is? Nobody knows who or what Hum is because he's not a character. Hun is a character. Bishop tells one of his lackeys to keep tabs on Hun, which will probably turn out bad. Speaking of bad, the tables turned on Splinter again when Ocho pops up from her seeming death to rejoin the fray. Bludgeon gets some help from Natsu, the super buff, super tattooed gunwoman who's one of Karai's top tier enforcers. She puts an end to a big burly masked ninja, and he's not the only one who gets dropped. Back in Splinter's chambers, Ocho cuts Yumiko down while Splinter battles Karai. Outside, the turtles make their way to the roof where they discover the battle that's raging along at Foot HQ. Koya spots them and the turtles plunge into combat. The four bros are handling some foot, which I've got to give them props for because they're on a rooftop covered in foot ninja, whose clothing would hardly be distinguishable in chaotic combat like that. There's two groups of 
foot guys battling, all wearing essentially black ninja pajamas. The only discerning, <clears throat> excuse me, the only discerning qualities that I can see are the good foot have little like silver head things and the bad foot have red belts. Do you know how tough it would be to pick that out in a fight? Guess that's why I'm not a ninja turtle though. The turtles seem to be fighting the right ones. We get a brief interjection of Karai talking some trash to Splinter while she takes pot shots at him and even burns his face with the Kirino Ken. Back outside, the boys are taking on Koya and Bludgeon, and they handle them fairly easily. As the turtles are making their way inside, though, Ocho stops them, and Mikey notices something on the roof above them. Karai is on the roof, and she addresses the crowd of combatants below with Splinter kneeling before her, injured physically and mentally. Natsu is holding one of the orphans with a gun to their head. Not cool at all. Karai disses Splinter and talks down on his reign as leader of the foot, but then offers Splinter's faction of the group to kneel and swear loyalty to her, which basically all of them do, if not every single one. The turtles are stuck between a rock and a ninja place here. Raph wants to straight up attack Karai. Leo restrains him. That definitely wouldn't be a good idea, but Raph is so angry it doesn't matter to him. With their shells against the wall, Leo decides they need to bounce out of there and regroup. Raph hates that decision obviously, but the brothers escape anyway. The issue ends with Karai telling Splinter, quote, and now your defeat is truly complete, Rat. Now you are truly alone. Oh boy, guys, things are not looking good for Splinter. I remember reading these last two episodes and just being like, oh, is, is, what, I, is what I fear happening going to happen? messaging a few friends on Instagram and Twitter basically like guys I think uh I think we're we're going to see the end of of splints man I hope not but anyways by this point in the arc city at war is absolutely living up to its name mob bosses getting blown up foot hq being invaded assassins ambushing part of the team at angel's dad's house the epf holding harold and libby hostage it is straight up pandemonium in these New York City streets. Definitely feels like we're reaching a boiling point here with Karai. She thinks she's got this in the bag, and there's something dangerous about her. I mean, that's an obvious statement, but besides the obvious, there's something, it feels like something's going on with her. Like she's not in a 100%, she's not in the 100% right headspace. You know, I'm not sure if I noticed this on my first read, but it appears that Kirino Ken is like messing with her somehow. At one point in their fight, it seems like Splinter is trying to tell her something about the sword and the dark powers within it, but Cry is way past listening to him. I'm curious to see what comes of that, because like we know with Roku Saki, like his his intentions of taking over the foot back in the day were were somewhat. I don't know if valid is the right word, but they were, they were somewhat based in a sense of trying to right things that he thought was wrong. He, he thought the clan had devolved into this shell of its former self, and he wanted to, pun intended shell, I didn't even mean to do that. He wanted to make the Foot Clan back into this you know, glorious, respected organization but he became corrupted by power and became corrupted by his, you know, lust for revenge over Hamato Yoshi. Well, then a similar thing kind of happened to Splinter. 
Splinter wanted to take over the Foot Clan to protect his sons. His whole idea was taking over the Foot so that if he ran the criminal element of the city, he didn't have to worry about the criminal element of the city being a danger to him and his family. But somewhere in that process, he lost sight of not only himself and his own views, but also his sons, and he just kind of ended up becoming a a different but new version of the Shredder. And not as bad, or not as evil, I guess, like obviously Splinter still does some bad stuff, like blow up mob guys in their high-rise you know, office things, but it's not with a maliciously evil intent. He thinks he's doing it for the right reason. But Karai here, as we see, she's all about, I want to restore the Foot Clan to glory. I want to fix what you and my grandfather got wrong. I want to make the Foot Clan... She wants to fix what she thinks is broken, essentially. But somewhere in that process, I don't know if it's strictly because of the sword or if it's because like she's you know, feeling the juices, you know what I mean? She's getting high on her own supply. It seems like she is just, she's kind of crossed this edge into like a slight mania. Like she used to be kind of the more, I feel like she used to check Shredder on a lot of things. She was a little more reserved and kind of thought about things a little bit more and not saying that she's not thinking about them now, but she just seems unhinged. Long story longer, she seems unhinged. I think that's the word I'm looking for. She was, she used to be cool, calm, and collected, albeit, you know, still pretty nasty when she needed to be, but there's just something about her now that makes me worry even more so than I normally would. But all right, guys, let's hop into issue 98. So issue 98 is City at War Part 6, as always, written by Tom Waltz, again, art by Michael Dialinus. The story so far recap says that Splinter has been defeated and captured by Karai. Bishop, Metalhead, and the EPF are getting closer to capturing the TMNT. Baxter Stockman's campaign to become mayor of New York City nears closer to election night. Meanwhile, Old Hob has something secret in the works. I don't like when Old Hob has secret things in the works, feel me? Alright y'all, so issue 98 opens with a serene scene of Hun sitting alone on a dock, looking like he's about to go looking for the solution to his problems in the bottom of a bottle of whiskey. He opts against that decision and smashes the bottle, an action which is commended by Bishop, who offers Hun a chance to, quote, destroy another poison threatening all of humanity. As Bishop is saying this, he's flanked by two monstrous mutant turtles who bear resemblance to Slash. Hun is kind of shook at first, but replies, quote, call me Hun, with a sinister grin on his face. And seriously, I hate these dudes. Hate them. The next page finds April O'Neil waking up at 5 a.m. to get her day started when she's surprised by the presence of Pepperoni and then the presence of the Ninja Turtles. April is glad the Turtles are okay, but wonders why they're at her place so unexpectedly. Leo informs her that they had nowhere to go. Mikey tells her about the orphans, and Raph informs her about Karai and that she's behind the Turtles' current problems, some of them at least. We then cut back over to Foot HQ where Karai is imprisoning Splinter. Karai breaks down the failings of the previous leaders of the Foot Clan and Splinter pleads with her that there's not going to be any good coming from her current actions. Karai informs the guards that Splinter is not to be given food or water and that his cell will not be opened unless commanded by her. And they slam the door shut. 
Back at April's, Mikey is cooking breakfast while April gets the news about Jenica from the other bros. Mikey serves breakfast and everyone enjoys a peaceful moment, the turtles sharing their appreciation for April and vice versa. Definitely feels like a brief, carefree moment before things get back to the nitty-gritty. And just like that, the moment is over as we take a peek into the Mutanimals' hideout and see what they're up to. Turns out, as usual, it's nothing good. Hob is looking on while Ray appears to be finishing up work on a vague, kind of ominous piece of equipment. Ray asks when they're going to inform the others about their plan, and Hob basically says they're not going to. He hints at some sort of plan he has regarding the Merrill campaign, and when he says the Mutanimals are going to, quote, cast their vote. Turns out, unbeknownst to Hob and Ray, Mondo Gecko has been spying on them, and he certainly looks concerned. Just when you think things can't get any sketchier, we catch up with Bishop and Hun, as Bishop trains Hun in the use of the Slash clones. He explains that the clones were created specifically to be mindless versions of Slash, so they had the same type of strength without the intelligence. Hun relays that he hopes they can take them on a real test drive and... Yep. Still hate these guys. Over at Stockman's election event, we watch April take on Baxter over his meeting with Madame Null. April basically puts Stockman on blast and lets him know that she has certain things in place that she's ready to act upon in case he starts thinking about putting her or the turtles in danger. April essentially hits Stockman with a mic drop moment, and as she walks away, he lets out a brief smile almost as if he's impressed with her tenacity and gusto. Or that he may be cooking up something to counteract her. I'm sure we'll eventually find out. Back at April's apartment, we catch up with the turtles as all their friends catch up with them. Alapex, Angel, Lindsay, Casey, and Jenica linked up with them and Mikey is hyped on Jenny's new look. He appreciates her new gear, but quips about her breaking the turtles' quote, one weapon rule, which Raph is quick to point out that Mikey is also breaking because he has a grappling hook along with his nunchucks. Everything's going pretty well until they recap Jenny on the situation and then Raph and Leo start fighting. Things get really intense with the two usual suspects almost coming to blows. Donnie splits them up and then Raph storms out, which we've seen so many times that even Donnie makes a sarcastic remark about it. We then get a quick scene of April and Baxter Stockman as Baxter learns that his opponents have thrown in the towel and that he's now the mayor of New York. While he's getting the good news, Hob and the Mutanimals are flying into the event to engage in whatever Hob has planned. Stockman is giving his acceptance speech when Hob decides to start the fireworks early. He has Sally blow up an EPF truck, which she refuses to do because she doesn't want to kill anyone, and the crew of Hob, Raph, Ray, and Mondo bring the fight to the EPF. Things get hectic, and Baxter decides it's time to dip. He and April escape via his flybots, and Raph and Mondo have a quick chat about how Hob is off his rocker. Mondo tells Raph that Hob has some secret gnarly plan as Hob takes the stage and gives a speech about humans being the real monsters. Hob finishes his speech with the chilling line, quote, we're here to change everything. Bishop interrupts as he and Hun show up with the Slash clones, but it's too late. Hob throws out the device that Ray cooked up and an explosion goes off. Just not the type we were expecting. You turn the page to a double splash where we see the stunned reactions of Sally, Pete, Bishop, Raph, and Mondo as the bystanders in the area are mutated. Hob didn't kill anyone, he just mutated them all turn to the last page and you get a quick scene of the imprisoned Splinter who's being contacted by the spirit of his wife Shen. Shen encourages Splinter and tells him he must find the strength to continue on and fight for all the children. Splinter begs her not to leave and he gets a reply, but not from who he expected. Rat King now appears and says, quote, leave hardly. 
I've only just arrived. And that concludes the issue. All right, dude and dudette. So 95 had Jenica's mutation. 97 had Splinter getting captured. And now 98 has Hob mutating a crowd of people with a mutagen bomb. City at War just gets more bonkers with each issue. And I love it. On the flip side of that coin, I've really enjoyed 98 because it has some really, really charming downtime moments. There's a couple scenes between April and the Turtles that just have them sitting around talking about their lives. And even though the conversation isn't all rainbows and unicorns, they're simply enjoying each other's companionship. There's a scene similar to that between the Turtles and their other homies, Angel, Casey, Alapex, and Jenica. It's cool that in between all the heartache and madness, that the, you know, the strength of these friendships keeps everyone grounded. Still bothers me that Raph is running with Hob, especially after the stunt he just pulled with the mutagen bomb. It's going to be really interesting seeing how everyone reacts to that, especially Raph, who is working, you know, alongside him. Hun and Bishop are working together, and as I've said numerous times, I hate them. That's all I've got to say about that. The last scene with Splinter was really cool and then really concerning. It was cool because it's always dope seeing Shen. We know from past comics that she shows up when it matters, so her appearing to Splinter will probably end up being important. Side note, if you've been reading Shredder in Hell, you probably feel stronger about about her presence because she showed up with Splinter there too. The concerning part about Rat King showing up is that when Rat King shows up, he just stirs the pot. And right now, in City at War, this is not a pot that needs more stirring. I figured we'd at least see Kitsune and maybe Akka as this stuff played out. Uh, Again, if you've read the finale of Shredder in Hell, you've seen them both. But Rat King here was quite a surprise. Uh, at least this late in the mix. Uh, Maybe I expected if the Pantheon was going to be involved, I expected to see them sprinkled throughout City at War. But in true Rat King fashion, he's showing up one issue away, one issue removed, excuse me, from issue 100. You know, we've only got 99 left, and here comes Rat King waltzing in to do whatever he's going to try and do with Splinter. I uh, am pretty curious about what part he'll play in this, Maybe we'll find out in the next book, which leads us to issue 99 is City at War Part 7, the penultimate chapter of City at War. It was written by Tom Waltz, and the art has switched back to artist Dave Wachter. Here's the story so far recap. Splinter has been defeated and captured by Karai. Bishop, Metalhead, and the EPF are getting closer to capturing the Ninja Turtles. Newly elected New York City Mayor Baxter Stockman's victory speech was interrupted by Old Hob, who detonated a mutagen bomb in the heart of the city. And if you guys are Spotify users, you know that just recently, Jay-Z's entire discography was placed back on Spotify. And on the Blueprint album, Jay-Z has a song called Heart of the City, in which the chorus says that there ain't no love in the heart of the city. And that song could not be more appropriate to what we just saw play out in City at War at Baxter Stockman's election event in the heart of the city. There's clearly no love there. Anyways, I digress. So 99 is a double-sized issue that starts out with a flashback. 
we're taken to Area 51 in the year 1984, where we see a young bishop, a.k.a. John, with a team of scientists or engineers developing his, quote, normal human body slash apparatus. After one of the engineers is mistakenly heard making a demeaning comment about Bishop, Bishop's dad gives him a speech about men being fearful and close-minded about things they don't understand. The speech partially lands with a young Bishop, but his real resolve comes from the idea that he knows he's human and he knows he has to protect Earth from outside threats. He looks to a Krang that's suspended in some sort of containment device and says, quote, somebody has to stop the real monsters. Turn the page and we're back in the now, and we're back in New York City in the middle of what's become a war zone. Bishop, Hun, and the Slash clones start manhandling the mutant crowd, which is understandably panicked. Hob and the Mutanimals start laying into the EPF. They plan to get the mutants out of there, seemingly so Hob can add them to his mutant ranks. Although I'm not sure how smart his plan is, if that is indeed his plan, because I don't know who's going to fight for him after he just ruined their lives. That's conjecture. We'll see where that goes. But Raph is not happy with how things are going, understandably so. He argues with Hob as mutants flood Sally's airship. Alapex, Jenica, and the rest of the homies show up, and Raph, who's upset, is caught off guard by Alapex's presence and storms away. Sally takes off while Hob covers their escape. Excuse me, covers their escape. Bishop orders the cops to bring any stragglers to him and says discretion is not a concern because the whole world just saw what went down. Elsewhere, Karai has gathered all of the various gangs of New York to declare she's now running the foot and things will be run differently. She's gathered them in the same old rundown theater that Shredder used way back in the City Fall arc to inform them that her version of the foot will not require them to pay tribute or swear fealty. Seems like she's trying to woo them, but I'm not sure what her goal here is other than impressing them and maybe trying to remove the organized crime element from the Foot Clan. She says the only time the foot will involve themselves in others' business is when they step out of line. And with that statement, she reintroduces Rocksteady and Bebop to flex her muscle in front of the other gangs. The book then jumps over to Foot HQ where Splinter is imprisoned as he's intruded upon by Rat King. Rat King has shown up to warn Splinter of the impending danger his family is about to release upon the world. And he also tries to recruit Splinter to his side. He tells Splinter a dragon is coming. And again, if you've read Shredder in Hell, especially the last issue, which just came out, then you'll know exactly who he's talking about. Rat King says that normally he'd enjoy his family's usual brand of chaos and danger, but says Kitsune is doing something truly stupid. Splinter rejects Rat King's offer, saying his allegiance belongs solely to his family, and he begins punching the wall of his prison. We then catch up with Leo, Donnie, and Mikey as they sneak up on Harold's lab. Harold and Libby are inside working for Metalhead, who's trying to use the teleporter, but he's running into some kind of problem he can't figure out. Donnie and his bros drop in, and Donnie explains to Metalhead that the teleporter doesn't work for him because he doesn't have faith. Metalhead is a machine who can't comprehend the human idea of having faith in something, and Donnie explains why this keeps him from being able to teleport, but also uses the teleporter to get the drop on Metalhead and hits him with one of Harold's devices that shocks him and takes him down. There's no time to celebrate, though, because Bishop just showed up. The EPF break into the lab but find no one there, but Bishop knows the teleporter was used in their escape and knows that they can use it to follow them, which is probably part of Leo and Donnie's plan. We then cut back to Foot HQ and find Karai in the throne room, if you'll call it that, where she's visited by Kitsune, 
Kitsune praises Kurai for her recent takeover and then thanks her for her recent actions because they'll allow her to take the next steps in her plan. Karai begins to question her about these steps, but she's interrupted by Leo, Mikey, and Donnie, who just teleported into the room. We briefly cut away as we catch back up with Splinter, as he does his best Beatrix kiddo impression, beating away at the wall of his prison. Rat King looks on, taunting and tormenting Splinter, but Splinter refuses to be swayed from his goal. With a final, focused effort, Splinter breaks through the wall and departs from his prison and Rat King. Meanwhile, Leo is telling Karai that EPF is on their way and they're not going to stop or honor any truces this time. Karai turns to arm herself with the Kirino Ken and to her surprise, it's gone. She realizes Kitsune must have taken it, but before anyone can do anything, the EPF comes in through the portal, guns blazing. Karai ducks out through a secret door and the turtles are stuck behind a rice paper screen. Not the best place for cover from gunfire. Leo dives out to take his problems head on, but then Rocksteady and Bebop bust in to lighten the load. Foot HQ becomes a battleground as members of the EPF, Foot Clan, and Clan Hamato start wrecking shop. Mikey and Donnie leave the main melee to find the orphans and make sure they're all good. They find the kids safe and sound, but also find Koya and Bludgeon. Back in the main fight, Leo and Bishop find each other to throw down, but before we get to the outcome of that, we catch up with Karai as she discovers that Splinter has escaped. Karai is not happy about that, obviously and she quickly dispatches the guards who are looking over Splinter. We switch back to Mikey and Donnie to see how they're doing with their buds Koya and Bludgeon, and seems like the situation is at a standstill until Angel and Alapex bust in to back the boys up. They drop the two baddies and we head back out to the main fight where Leo and Bishop are knocking sense into or out of each other, Rocksteady and Bebop are duking it out with the Slash clones, and just as Hun is about to step in, he's held up by Casey and Jenica. So now everyone who matters is at Foot HQ involved in the fight in some way. The only exceptions are Karai, Splinter, and Kitsune, who we know they're there at HQ, they're just not really involved in one of these you know, fights that are occurring. Turns out Karai has wandered outside searching for Kitsune, and she comes upon her as we get some ominous narration from Kitsune herself. She says, quote, All the pieces are in place at last set to be joined together in a spectacular collision of old and new, past and present, and of the future. Inevitable, inexorable, eternal. As that last word is spoken, there's a shot of Alapex as she senses slash realizes something is wrong. At least, more wrong than all the other stuff going wrong at the moment. The last page of the book shows Karai finding Kitsune on the roof of the building with the Kirino Ken and tells Karai, Ah, granddaughter, you have arrived just in time to witness the return of the dragon. Which is my favorite Bruce Lee movie. All jokes aside, guys, that's the end of the issue, and wow, what a cliffhanger. As I said before, that was a double-sized issue, and they did not waste a single page. City at War only has one issue left, and it looks like it is about to be a banger of an issue. We saw so much here in 99, the fallout of Hobbs' mutagen bomb and him rescuing quote-unquote the mutants, Metalhead being taken down, Splinter escaping, Rat King warning Splinter about Kitsune and a dragon, everyone showing up for the final battle, and then Kitsune preparing some sort of enchantment or reincarnation or uh, summoning over Shredder's headless body. I've finished Shredder in Hell, so it's difficult talking about this without diving deep into that, 
which I'll have to do at some point or another uh, for another episode of the show. But anyways, it looks like Kitsune is about to release some new kind of fury on the world, and it's going to be up to the turtles, as usual, to shut her down. I'm really interested to see where issue 100 leaves everyone. What does the return or release of the dragon mean for New York City? What does it mean for Kitsune and the Pantheon? What does it mean for Karai? Will we see Urokusaki back in the real world? And if so, what does that mean for him and the dragon and Kitsune? Not to mention, where the shell was Raphael during all of this? So many questions to answer, and only one double-sized issue left to answer them. Guess we'll see what happens this Wednesday. And that's that, dudes and dudettes. That wraps up part two of the City at War recap, and now we'll all be ready for issue 100. Next time you hear from me will be post-issue 100, where I'll be breaking down and reviewing that. May have a friend along for that ride, but we'll see. In the meantime, reread the City at War issues and make sure to prep yourself mentally and emotionally, because I am sure we are in for one crazy ride. As always, I'd appreciate it if y'all could rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. And make sure to share the show with the Turtles fan or fans in your life. Everyone is welcome here at Booyaka Show. You can find and follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at ZosoTMNT, that is Z-O-S-O-T-M-N-T, so do that too. Thanks a million, everyone. I truly appreciate y'all's time and energy and listens. I've been your host, Zach Norris, and you've been listening to Booyaka Show, a TMNT podcast. I'll catch y'all next time. Cowabunga!